Movine, a contemporary ghost story, written and narrated by Roy Baldwin. Chapter 1 1990 on a canal in West Lancashire Working her way back home along the towpath from her friend Annie's house, Victoria Mackenzie reflected long and hard. The gloom of dusk was descending, and she vainly attempted to dodge the holes and ruts in the scrappy gravel surface, full of water from the earlier storm deluge. Why, Victoria concluded, doesn't anybody care about what she thinks, what she wears and how she spends her time? It was like living in another bygone era in that god-awful cottage. She and Annie had thoroughly enjoyed their music session earlier, paying a fevered homage alongside a few cans of lager to their favourite Black Sabbath and Frank Zappa weekly indulgence, especially since Annie's father had managed to track down an original Paranoid album in that musty old record shop in Paradise Street, where he worked. She liked Annie's parents, Zeb and Katrina. They had met in an old shoe shop in 1965 on London's Carnaby Street, when it was all the vogue pretending to be hippies. Katrina was from posh Finchley, but he hailed from the dark, scruffy end of Liverpool, an unlikely coupling if ever there was, but they were the days of wild abandonment when the fashions had become awesome and daring, with Mary Quant, miniskirts and the pill. Zeb and Katrina had made her laugh all evening, parading around in purple fleurs, thick-soled brown clumpy boots and a white miniskirt. Katrina still had amazing legs and a figure to die for. Everything was so normal at Annie's, unlike with her own horrendous parents, who continued to live in a yesteryear she neither understood nor empathised with. It wasn't her fault they were so old. Shit! Jack, her father, was already drawing his pension when she was born, and her mother was 43. They were still constantly going on about the 30s and the fucking war years, especially her, and how bad it all was, and how they never had any proper food, and the damned religious obsession of going to church more noon and night, but never together, always separate. In fact, she hoped, when her father sneaked out on a Friday night, ostensibly to pray, that he was really having some wild affair with the greengrocer, who forever spoke warmly about him like they were all still living the good life of 1948. Not much hope of that, though. He never spoke about his past, or his thoughts for her, or his ambitions, or his politics, or indeed anything, please God, only the occasional mumbling about his weird obsession with arachnids in various states of pinned, dissected and hanging formats on boards, next to the four stages of live tarantulas and black widows, down that fucking dark cellar. Considering he had been a science teacher all his life in a hallowed private girls' school three miles away, she could never understand his constant closed inner world and perpetual silences. He was obviously bright, an outstanding biology scholar, and had even been to Cambridge taking natural sciences, but took zero interest in her own progress at school. They never went to parents' evenings. He just sloped off every Friday on his own without a word said. Christ, she thought. Something in his past must have really messed up his brain. Her mother Beatrice regularly taunted him. Real men fought in the war overseas in trenches, parrying fire and bullets to each other, whilst he avoided conscription unfairly, as a teacher chalking rubbish on blackboards to kids whose well-to-do parents had more money than conscience. 
Whenever that regular barrage started, he would slope off down to his spiders and not be seen for days. In the meantime, Beatrice would rail off on her own instead, with a daily berating for just about everything she did, wore, listened to or said, and of course being the biggest miserable disappointment in her life imaginable. Fuck! The Berlin Wall had just come down. Soon the whole of Europe and Great Britain would unite. Communism was dead, and the world outside was getting interesting, but you wouldn't know it in Cinder Black Lane. So why on earth would her mother be interested in that long past period of doom, gloom and make do and mend, day in and day out? What was especially incomprehensible was that her mother had once been a fashionable and sought-after model up to her mid-twenties and had been brought up in another culture. She was American. The ultimate paradox, and so incredibly overbearing it was unreal. The only homage to some sense of past normality was the occasional break from her 40s dance band obsession and listening to early Elvis Presley records. Once she even caught her mother almost animated, rocking to Chuck Berry, but that was hastily turned off when Victoria walked into the room. As Victoria continued walking, she realised she should have left Annie's much earlier. Darkness was approaching very quickly, and she still had at least a mile to walk before reaching the edge of the town. It was quiet, chilly and eerie. Only the gentle lap-lapping of the dark, murky water at the side of the canal breaking the silence around her. She stirred over the fields between a break in the bushes, where the land was quite flat and observed the large old mansion in the black of the distance, the setting sun casting an eerie yellowy glow behind it, emphasising the stark burnness of the many chimneys and high rooftops. Someone was still living there. One room could be seen dimly lit through the misty haze over the marshy terrain in between. As a child, she was told never ever to go over there, as the place was near derelict and dangerous, and bad people lived inside. At one stage, the forbidden house fascinated her as a little girl. She and Edwin, her older cousin, used to regularly play and cycle on the towpath. Then, when she was eight, she discovered a dirt track behind the bushes and long grass, sneaking through the marsh towards the mystery building. She had no idea who lived there. Nobody knew or talked about it, except wild rumours from her friends of some old woman, who her mother would describe as a witch, and who would boil up children alive if she caught them around the house. So Victoria never had to go there. She remembered that one day when, after a heated discussion, of should they or shouldn't they, she persuaded Edwin to push his bicycle through the hedgerow with a worked-out plan to sneak up and peer surreptitiously through the windows. But they only got ten yards when her mother sprang out from nowhere, just behind the trees. How or why her mother was there, Victoria had no idea, but her face was immediately slapped hard and Edwin was told to go home and that she would tell his mother and for him to expect a spanking that evening. He ran off terrified, while she just cried and cried, being dragged mercilessly all the way back home, her face badly swollen with the blow. Her mother had never hit her before, and never did again, but that fear at such a tender age had instilled such an innate horror of the place that she put it fully out of her mind from that time onwards. She continued plodding along steadily, pondering again. She really shouldn't be down there at this time of night on her own. 
Finally, the canal bent around the rollicky lay of the land, and she crossed over the rickety wooden bridge, which at one stage, using a rope, could be swung completely across on some sort of swivel to let the barges through. But there were no barges now, and the choking weeds in the canal, general neglect and decay, was badly evident. The bridge had eventually been repaired, raised up and bolted onto fixed concrete pillars, and extended either end so any intrepid boaters, and there were one or two, could pass underneath, just with the owners lying flat on their decks. There was once even plans for a swish metal framed replacement, but the dithering council in the end couldn't be bothered and claimed they had other priorities to spend scarce money on. So it continued to be repaired and renovated, looking distinctly ramshackle and worn out. As she continued onto the other side, the reeds on the side of the bank had grown noticeably larger. She made her way carefully onwards, feeling very wary of falling in, as the darkness had now descended firmly, and only the faint light of the near full moon was to be a guiding salvation from accidental drowning. It was there that she saw it, vaguely through the reeds in the water. Victoria stopped and looked again, peering into the murky gloom and blackness. Something was sat in the water, covered in some weird type of purple sheeting like a shroud. The wind suddenly began to get up, and her heart pounded fiercely. Oh God, it was a body, a corpse floating in the water. She could see a head and long brown hair, all bloated and oozing horrible coloured fluids, and the whole thing started rising up out of the water. A hand, at least it looked like a hand, emerged from the sheeting and was pointing in the direction she had just come. She screamed and screamed, totally unable to move, paralysed, her feet stuck to the ground like massive lead weights. She couldn't shift and run whilst the purple shroud bobbed and blobbed about like a jelly inside a piece of polythene, flubbing in the water. All she could do was continue to scream, and then she finally found herself able to move, turning violently and running blindly back anywhere away from this dreadful nightmare when she was caught trapped inside the outstretched arms of someone huge wearing a black cape in front of her. She looked up into the eyes of the monster. Hey, come on, what time is this here, young lady? You're fine now. Come on, calm down. There's nothing here to be frightened of. Will Hargreaves, the local police sergeant from the Bursco police station, was holding her firmly as she shook and shivered violently. He was a tall, well-built man, probably close to retirement, and was indeed wearing a long black overcoat, but the relief seeing his friendly face was so palpable that she cried with emotion and gratitude. Mr Hargreaves, thank God it's you, but can't you see it? That thing, the dead body floating in the water, the hand pointing at us, she screamed out. He let her go, and she pointed back towards the reeds, and the gloom of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, turning into the bend ahead. There was something there, floating near the edge, just visible in the moonlight, not in the middle of the water, and white and rounded, but there was no sign of any hand, and the wind had vanished. Everywhere was calm, exactly as it had been when she set off. Good heavens, Victoria, what on earth is going on in your head? 
It's only from that damned old town of here at Rambolding, another dead pig stripped of hide, that some idiot has thrown in the cut rather than disposing it via the proper waste facilities. There used to be a lot of this years ago. Haven't seen it for a long time. Mind you, it's floated some miles on to get this far. I shall report it to the council in the morning. No doubt the health inspectors will be over there again. It really is time that place was closed down for good, but at least they've now fenced off the lime pit properly. If you fell in there, you'd know about it. But honestly, Mr Hargreaves, I'm sure I saw... Listen, I have to ask you, but as it's you, and I know Beatrice and Jack well, it will be informal. Have you been drinking or drugs? Tell me now. No, absolutely not, Mr Hargreaves. Annie and I aren't into that. I'm just sure that... Ah, Annie Warburton, I assume. A nice family. Is she your best friend? Yes, we spent the evening listening to records and talking. I'm just on my way back home. I must admit I was miles away when I thought I saw... Obviously something else. Yes, sometimes our imaginations can do funny things in the dark. You really shouldn't be walking down the towpath this time of night on your own. I know we don't get much crime around here, but you never know. There are some funny buggers around. I'm sure your parents wouldn't be happy either. Victoria shrugged. I do it a lot. I like the walk usually, but I think after tonight I'll get the bus back despite the cost. Actually, I'm starting a part-time job next week at weekends in the supermarket, so I can afford to be sensible. Sergeant Hargreaves laughed his usual deep belly laugh. I think that is a much better idea, Victoria. She looked at him gratefully. A comforting relic from the past, really, and probably the last of his generation. The rural copper that everyone knows and respects. He was a welcome presence. Perhaps, she thought, some aspect of her parents' past were not all bad because the next generation of police will sadly have lost that local engagement and commitment to the community and knowing everyone like Sergeant Hargreaves, for whom policing had run in the family for half a century or more. He continued, Tell you what, my patrol car is just by the bridge. I shall take you home, young lady. We don't want any more creating down the canal this evening. Thanks, Mr Hargreaves, gratefully accepted. Please don't tell my mother, will you? It will just be easier if... Don't worry, I understand. Sometimes we oldies don't comprehend your generation as well as we should. But hey, hasn't it always been like that? My parents never understood me one iota at all. She smiled, and they walked back over the old bridge, and she got into his warm Land Rover. She looked into the back and his Alsatian dog, Maxwell, was lying peacefully on the back seat, raising a mild eyebrow as Victoria stepped in, before nodding back into a peaceful slumber again. As they drove off, he carried on the conversation. Actually, I haven't seen Jack, your father, for ages. Does he keep him well? He taught my daughter, Joanna, over at Cradwell. He was a teacher there a long time, wasn't he? She got a scholarship, could never have afforded it otherwise on a copper's wages. He laughed again. She loved his classes, eventually did medicine at uni and as a GP in London now, doing well and all down to your father. Victoria felt quite startled at that revelation. She couldn't for the life of her imagine what her father could have been like in a classroom, let alone vaguely interesting, especially in a girls' school. Really? 
That's, um, well, actually he never talks about his past pupils. Yes, he was at Cradwell all his life, straight after university, never taught anywhere else. He retired fully now, keeps himself to himself and doesn't go out much, which is probably why you haven't seen him. Give him my regards, Victoria. I'll buy him a pint at the George when he's in next. I knew your mother when she was still modelling. She was a real cracker in those days, he joked. Victoria smiled and thought. Little did he know how she is now around the house, slovenly dirty and lazy, a real trollop. It wasn't surprising her father was always down the cellar. She still dolled up with heavy makeup when she went out to the local shop so nobody would even guess, and they never got visitors. Well, who would want to go there? In fact, the main reason she took the cookery option at school was so she could make some decent meals once in a while. And she was doing really well academically at school. Not that either of them gave a toss. She remembered telling her father she came top in each of the three separate science subjects, physics, chemistry and biology. But all he could say was what was wrong with mathematics because she came second and then went off to feed Edna the tarantula who got 50 times more attention. Most of her friends, except Emmy, whose mum had always been single, all seemed to have cool fathers except her, and she was getting fed up with the bitching and sniggering when parents were mentioned by some of the silly cows in the class below, who would have liked to bully her. But when she walloped the ringleader behind the bicycle sheds in the face, they backed off for good. Fuck all of those losers. She was going to do well and get to university, out of this hellhole for good. Mind you, she sniggered to herself. After punching Amy Dickinson later in the mouth, it won her some tasty male admiration from a few interesting sixth formers, especially Brian. At least she went on the pill straight away. Heaven knows what her mother would say, if she knew. But she wouldn't even guess, living in that weird netherworld of hers. OK, Brian was 18, and definitely heading for Oxford next year to do engineering but they had a cool time together for now. And Annie was going out with his younger brother too, which was fun. But no way could they all go drinking in the George anymore after some bastard told her mother in the newsagents. She denied it, of course. But the vituperative slanging and nagging went on for days and days. How she was fucked off with living in that dreary cottage with that pair of idiots. Something was going to have to give. She didn't know if she could stand it much longer. Maybe Zeb and Katrina could adopt her. They drove slowly down Cinderblack Lane to the small semi-detached cottage at the end and her thoughts jolted back to reality. She gazed up at the building in the haze of the street lamp in front. It must have been at least 150 years old and as drafty and cold inside as it probably was then although at least they probably stayed warm with roaring coal fires rather than a dodgy oil heating system, which smelled at night. The thatching needed stripping off and replacing, and her bedroom was always full of insects in the summer. She noticed a big crack in the grey rendering near the end chimney breast. A general air of decrepitude and lack of maintenance was evident. She caught Will Hargreaves perusing too, with a look suggesting joint agreement. I'll just drop you off here, Victoria. I won't bother to call in. Now take this. He handed her a large peppermint from a bag of the dashboard. Suck hard and lay off the lager a bit next time. I can smell your breath. Okay. She smiled. 
Sergeant Hargreaves was a nice bloke. She sauntered towards the front door, thinking that actually those cans of lager were a bit strong and giggled. In fact, probably mixing them with cider wasn't such a good idea. All Brian's fault, talking about snake bites through the night when they had gone in his car to the disco at the King's Arms in Chorley, away from prying eyes and twitching village curtains. That explained seeing the purple pig. Gosh, that really scared the bejeebas out of her. At least that must be the explanation, mustn't it? As she pulled out her front door key, she peered in through the uncurtained window. Lights blazing and her mother sat there, staring into space with a distinctly angry look on her face. Her father was nowhere to be seen, and the cellar window was dark. But of course it was Friday night, when he was probably out shagging Nellie the potato woman or something equally gross. She was going to get it in the neck, that was for sure. But perhaps if she was quick enough, she could get to her bedroom before her mother struggled up from the chair, especially if the whiskey bottle had been full enough earlier. Racing up the stairs, out of her mother's way, her mind focused on one thing. How long could she keep this ludicrous and demeaning situation up for? Time was running out. She was 15 and no longer the child to be bossed around. Late spring had arrived and Victoria was walking calmly from her vinyl GCSE examination, which happened to be in her favourite subject, chemistry. She had torn into the paper and finished half an hour before everyone else, was confident of an A star, as she was with the other sciences and mathematics. Only English literature might let her down with a B because she hated reading fiction, was happiest with her head in a book of practical experiments or reading about the history of science, which she had used for a project on women in chemistry in the 19th century. Since the peculiar episode on the canal, she had kept well away from the towpath, ditched Brian because he was becoming far too clingy, and she just wanted to get on with her own life and work extremely hard at her studies. Whatever her father was up to, she never knew nor cared. He now slept permanently in the attic guest room. The only sign of life he was still alive was the drifting smell of cigarettes in the bathroom after he had been in the morning, and the sight of the back of his black raincoat in the distance as he sloped off to the potato woman on Friday evenings. Her slovenly mother was becoming even more of a pain in the neck, hardly doing any housework which Victoria began to do every morning before school, and the cooking later because she couldn't stand the internal chaos and needed a sense of order around her to effectively study. At least her mother could still gather enough wits to head out to the supermarket occasionally in the old battered green Volvo she'd hung onto for years. Anyway, she needed to get there to keep stocked up with bells, which was disappearing down her gullet at an ever-increasing rate. Victoria had entered for four extra examinations on top of the eight academic ones, including art, computing and music, which she enjoyed hugely, and even had to pay for them out of her own pocket, as they didn't want to know. Her mother was getting balmier. Perhaps it was the drink. Or she was always that way. Years ago, they would have locked her mother up in the Bursco Lunatic Asylum. Victoria cared little except for one thing. The constant visions and the feelings. Her mother kept babbling on about a bad presence and evil vibrations in the cottage was forever poring over a large old Bible. She'd always gone on about being psychic when Victoria was a little girl, half scared the life out of her then. 
although sometimes Victoria had to freely admit that there were times when she felt uncomfortable in the place and didn't know why, especially after that upsetting night on the canal. It was a chemistry teacher, Dr Eva Fennig, who had triggered the most insane idea but it gripped her mercilessly. Today was the day of action. She would do it without any further hesitation. Eva was in her mid-twenties and single. They had gotten on together so well and she even offered extra chemistry tutorials after school. A great help with practical work. The idiot slags at the bottom of the class who liked to mess about all day rather than learn anything useful for their futures used to call her Everest because she was so tall. But Victoria made sure they got a kicking when no one was looking. Nobody bullied her anymore. Eva was German. Her mother had fled to England after being released from Auschwitz. And Eva had studied science at Leiden University in Holland. A place of real academic learning, like the Dutch equivalent of Cambridge. She was going to do the same. She was inspired. It was time to run. Her patience had finished. She was 16 and the weekend job had been good. She had saved over a thousand pounds, all locked up and hidden away in her money box. She hadn't packed much, just enough to all go in her rucksack. She had kept up the regular record sessions with Annie and had also developed an odd urge to wear a lot of purple, which she now loved as a fashion shade, both of them dolling up for the king's arms on Saturday nights in a sort of matching gothic rock style. That was one thing she was going to miss. But Annie was not as academic and had decided to do beauty therapy at the local further education college in Ormskirk, so they would likely go their own ways in due course anyway, but she would remain her best friend forever. Most importantly, Annie's parents were stars. They understood everything. Zeb, amazingly, had given her an address of a place that some were called the Pinsengracht in Amsterdam and the names of Beth and Andromeda. They were all friends of his and had bought one of the big old merchant houses along there and set up some sort of hippie academic commune of environmentalists. Zeb just said turn up and mentioned his name and they would be good to go with a roof over her head. Zeb had joked that she would feel totally at home being alongside a canal and anyway there were lots more canals in Amsterdam to explore. She had bought her map, got her passport and exchanged a hundred pounds of her money into Dutch guilders and was feeling very excited, her stomach dancing about with anticipation. Following a lengthy and tearful set of goodbyes, good luck and hugs from Annie and her parents, she jumped into the waiting taxi and set off towards Ormskirk station and the ferries. Once in Calais she would hitch to Holland, but on the way she was perusing her map realising that the Andromeda household was near Anne Frank's house an interesting place she looked forward to visiting, which made her think immediately of someone also very special. Almost causing the taxi to swerve, she asked immediately for a detour to Eva's, who lived about a mile from Bursco station, so she would get the train from there instead. She knocked nervously at the door. She knew the address, but had never been there. Eva slowly opened it and looked wide-eyed at Victoria, her long hair in a ponytail, all kitted out with hiking boots, heavy rucksack and wax jacket. Hi Eva, I just wanted to see you today before I go and thank you for all you did to help me. The chemistry exam was a cinch. 
Eva looked up and down the road carefully, then waved Victoria in. She stepped straight into the living room of a small two-up and two-down Edwardian townhouse. The room was beautifully furnished with antique furniture and a lovely old recovered red couch and matching armchairs. An old stereo system with a mixture of tapes, records and CDs stacked in a glass cupboard sat in one corner. The heavy velvet curtains were drawn tightly and the room dimly lit by a couple of wall lights, the walls nicely decorated with prints of female scientists. The dour, unsmiling Marie Curie took pride of place over the fireplace. She could hear a television on slightly in the dining room next door. Having physically grown a lot in her previous school year, Victoria was almost as tall now as Eva, both a commanding presence, and probably the only useful thing she took from her mother. Eva, lifting off the heavy rucksack onto the floor, beckoned her to the couch and sat next to her, taken aback and intrigued, expecting Victoria next term to join the sixth form. Victoria began to explain, felt her heart pound, as a small tear rolled down Eva's left cheek. Blimey, she certainly hadn't wanted to upset the best teacher she ever had by miles. But Eva finally smiled and said she was humbled to have inspired Victoria to do something so exciting. How wonderful it would be at Leiden University, that she would have to learn Dutch despite half the courses being run in English. Some more advanced study first before being admitted was also emphasised and being vital. And Eva would happily write her a glowing reference if required. Victoria was over the moon and forgetting for a moment that Eva was her teacher, not Annie, went to kiss her on the cheek to thank her. But suddenly found their lips meeting passionately for a good five minutes instead. It made her heart thump wildly She'd never realised before, having a set of blinkers on, and now realised why Eva was so upset. Everything suddenly made sense. Eventually, Eva drew away, flushed and embarrassed. Victoria stood up calmly and confidently. Don't worry, Dr Fennig. I'm sorry I must go. I can't afford to miss that last ferry tonight. Tell you what, perhaps I should call you Eva from now on, if that's okay. And hey, promise me you will come and visit in Amsterdam sometime, and I will write regularly. Anyway, I'll probably need some help soon with organic chemistry. Eva smiled. Maybe I'll just do that, Victoria. Keep in touch. Good luck. Victoria was quickly out of the door, and with a final wave sauntered happily down the road towards the train station. She would just make it to London, then onwards to Dover and Freedom. Skipping along, she hummed to herself quietly, Gosh, I've kissed a girl, so the hippies in Amsterdam won't know what will hit them. Bring it all on. <clears throat> she mused mischievously. A kissing a girl was likely much better than kissing a ghost, which she would have had to do if she'd stayed in Cinderback Lane a day longer. Hopefully, the terse note left behind, telling them not to bother looking for her as she won't be coming back, will keep any further demons from following on behind. End of chapter.